Um, if you have your Bibles, um, you can open them to Acts 15. Um, glad you're with us. Um, if you're visiting or haven't been tuned in over the past month, um, there's a whole lot of context um, that really needs to be just mentioned before we get to this um, chapter. It's really going to help us uh, wrestle with the content of chapter 15. So I can't give you a full recap, right? But let me point out a few components that we have kind of laid as groundwork as we've been looking um, at the book of Acts, walking through the book of Acts together. The primary thing to know about the entire book of Acts, the overarching larger meta story arc, whatever you want to call it, that Luke, who is the author of Acts, is trying to answer the main question he's trying to answer for the Jews of those, of those uh, days were, do the Gentiles get in on this? And if so, on what terms? So we've established that pretty solid uh, throughout the months that we've been sitting with the book of Acts. In other words, is the work of Jesus larger than one ethnicity? Is this open to the nations or is this just for the Jews? That was a very real question that the early church was wrestling with. Is this simply a Jewish renewal movement, which is what many of them thought it was, or is this something entirely different, the scope of which we cannot even begin to imagine what God is doing through Jesus in our time? But their thinking was, no, this is just something that God is doing for the Jews, by the Jews, I suppose. Um, and it was salvation and a renewal within the Jewish movement. And if that feels weird to you, like, well, not really. Like, we're, we're Christians. Like, everybody come in. Okay. Just read a little bit of the New Testament. Okay. And what you will see, a whole lot of it addressing, is the inevitable cultural conflict of Jews mixing with non-Jews. They're going to drop all kind of language like, circumcision and stuff like that and what they're and food sacrificed to idols and all these kind of things and what all of those topics are dealing with is when gentiles are mixing with jews and there was no little disturbance in the working out of this new work of jesus okay which is what we're going to read about today so we've spent a lot of time on that um uh, leading up till today because the book of Acts spends a lot of time on that. Primarily chapter 10 and 11, which is a couple of weeks ago where Peter, uh, the Holy Spirit is given, where Peter sees the Holy Spirit, which is like the seal of his salvation, right? The Holy Spirit is called the deposit of God in other places in scripture. He sees it given to the Gentiles with the same manifestation that happened with them at Pentecost tongues, right? Um, which he's going to reference today in, in, in chapter 15. The other big issue they've had to wrestle with is this, which is, which is great dinner topic conversation, circumcision, uh, which is what I mentioned earlier. Up to this point, if you were going to get in with the people of God, you, and if you were male and you were going to convert, you had to get snipped, okay? Probably one of the larger reasons they did not see a lot of converts, okay? But just like, so what does that mean for us, right? Just like religious people today point to some outward act as proof of inward holiness, so stay with me, just like religious people today point to some outward act as proof of inward holiness, i.e., I go to church, I read the Bible sometimes, I pray when things really get tough, as a last resort, you know. So too did the Jews point 
to the physical act of circumcision as to why they were accepted before God. So deep in your heart, you have some notion of either being accepted or rejected by God himself, the holy creator God. You have some idea of whether or not you are rejected in his presence, in the presence of perfect holiness, blinding glory, or whether you are rejected. And the things of which you point to, to prove either your rejection or your acceptance says much about you. It says much about your understanding of the gospel. And this is what the early church is wrestling with. What makes us right before God? Is this something that if we pray hard enough or go to church enough, or even I'll lead a small group, I'll lead a spine, I'll just do it. Get on God's good side, right? The Jews were pointing to outward circumcision as proof of inward holiness. Even in the Old Testament, God said, you need to snip your heart. <laughs> Not your, anyway, okay. It's gonna get worse, okay? Look, we're gonna talk about circumcision. It's just gonna get worse, so just, see, that's most religions, is it not? Isn't that every religion in a nutshell? How do I get on God's good side? Isn't that what every religion claims to know? And every religion with all of their different norms and rituals and practices claim this knowledge. We can get you good with the big guy. Do this thing, say this prayer, attend this ritual, right? Abstain from this act, participate in this thing. That's all religions, guys, isn't it? Yeah, except Christianity. I might need to yell that just a little bit louder. In fact, what I just described, do this thing, go to this place, perform this ritual to get right with God is anti-Christianity. It is anti-gospel. So much so that all kind of dust is going to get, we're going to, we're going to see sharp disagreement over this thing in the book of Acts today, right? This idea that you can get on God's good side by your acts of righteousness, of which the Old Testament prophets told us are like filthy rags. See, there are these beautiful snippets of the gospel, little rays of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. It's a beautiful thing about the Bible, right? The idea, look at me, the idea that you could pray enough and read enough Bible and do enough good acts to get on God's good side is anti-Christianity. It's not what we believe. Praise his name. And if some of you are super confused, like, well, then what do we do? Okay, hang tight. <laughs> hang tight, man. So much so. It is so anti-gospel that Paul would later say, look, if you think snipping it will get you right with God, might as well cut off the whole thing. Just reading the Bible. Just reading the Bible. All right? Galatians 5.12, look it up. All right, Paul? Paul, Paul, didn't, Paul didn't pull punches, man. He didn't pull no punches, all right? Later in the New Testament, we will see the sufficiency of the cross. Yeah, we should, right? Let's just breathe the sufficiency of the cross in great detail in the New Testament. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness could be gained by obeying the law, then Christ died in vain. You've made the cross null. You've made it meaningless, purposeless, futile. You've made the sacrifice of the Son of God futile. If you think you can get on God's good side by obeying the law, right? This is a peppy sermon so far, isn't it? Galatians 5, 
If you are trying to justify yourself by obeying the law, you've severed yourself from Christ. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. Therefore, now, looking back, you and I should know and be living out of, functioning out of the reality of this truth, that motivation for all Christians is, is clear in this passage, right? And in what we're going to look at. If you call yourself a Christian, here's the truth. The reason you participate in any Christian behavior is not to make yourself right before God. The gospel obliterates this kind of thinking. It is anti, we don't pray to get brownie points. We don't gather with believers to, to get some reward from our efforts. We don't love others to, and submit to God so that God will accept us. All Christian action, if it is true Christian action, is done from the understanding that everything we do can only be in response to what God has already done for and in us in the work of Jesus. All Christian action, if true Christian action, is done from the understanding that it can only be response of what God has already done for us and in us. In other words, if, you, if in all of your Christian behaviors you are not responding to the glory and the beauty of the grace of God through Jesus, you do not have a biblical Christianity. I need to say that again. If in all of your Christian behavior, you are not responding to the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus, then you do not have a biblical Christianity. More than likely, you have some culturally cross-pollinated version of Christianity in which you maintain your sense of control over your life by putting God in your debt by doing good things. If you are not here out of worship, gratitude for what God has done, then you have missed the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Tim Keller says this, the essence of other religions is advice. Do this, go here, do this. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It is joyful news. It's why the angels that heralded his birth said, good news, great tidings, right? Every other religion says, do Christianity says done. Keller points out, Buddha's last words were strive unceasingly. Jesus' last words were it is finished. And the difference is stark. These ideas are exactly what's being hotly debated in the early church and what we will see in Acts 15. And is eventually why Christianity had to become its own thing. You see, the legal structures of Judaism, the rules, the religious hierarchy could not coexist in light of such overwhelming grace and beauty. So long roundabout way to talk about circumcision in the New Testament, but it will represent 
this idea that we can be justified by observing the law, and it will be addressed over and over again. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians will all address the issue of circumcision in the aftermath of what we are reading today. Okay? In fact, many theologians agree that Galatians is actually written about the council at Jerusalem. So it's a fantastic partner read for what we're talking about today. Go home and read Galatians, and it will... I, Hope, maybe, we'll have a bit of a new light on it, okay? Because it is talking about the very topics that Acts 15 is hitting on. So if you look at your Bible, Acts, if you have uh, titles in your Bible, you might have uh, Council at Jerusalem, or Jerusalem Council, over 15, chapter 15, which is what we're going to read today. So let's pray, and let's read the scripture together. Jesus, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you'd rest on us, and we pray that you would teach us how to sit with your word, Lord. Lord, teach us how to feast at the table um, of your word. God, I pray that today in our hearts, the idea of tasting and seeing that you are good for ourselves would lay its weight on some of our hearts in Jesus' name. Help us see, help us taste. Help us be fed at your table. Jesus' name, amen. Acts 15, I'm gonna read a bit. Chat, read a bit, chat, you know the deal. Here we go. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, that's Bible for things got hot, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. They said, y'all need to go to the home front. You need to go to the big Count all the big, big dogs at Jerusalem and work this out because we're getting confused. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. This is still startling news to everyone that the Gentiles are getting in, right? For when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. The way that Luke is writing this is making it clear that he is trying to show that Paul is one of the crew. They were welcomed. Because one of the biggest issues, and you see Paul dealing with this later in his letters, is that he is somehow a counterfeit apostle, that he's not the real deal, he's not part of the 12, and so his word doesn't count. And what Luke is trying to make clear in this passage, which you'll see here and more later, he is qualified, apostolic, saw Jesus. Okay. Um, Five. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, some believers who belong to the Pharisees, these were Pharisees that had become believers, just like Paul. This is Paul's home crew. Paul as a Pharisee became a believer, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered to consider this matter. So it's clear here that this is still firmly perceived as a Jewish renewal movement, right? Okay, the Gentiles can get in, but they better get in line, start acting like us Jews, right? And it brings to the forefront of the question, what did Jesus mean in Matthew 5 when he said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Right? Jesus said he didn't come to do away with it. He came to complete it, to consummate it, to satisfy it. And that, of course, has great relevance here. Uh, Verse seven. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, 
bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. It was the same. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So us, just like them now, we, we get in a different way. There's a different path of righteousness now. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So it's real. Peter just drops the truth bomb, right? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of Jesus, just as they will. 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had been done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, referring to Peter, just said this, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Oh, love that. Love that. To take from them a people for his name. Me, me, Lord, take from me. <clears throat> Lost my place. Um, 15, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He quotes Amos 9. Okay, brings Old Testament in, okay? 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from things that have been strangled and from blood. For, listen to his reason for these rules, listen. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Okay, so you see, this is his reasoning. In other words, the Gentiles are aware of our customs. Moses is, the diaspora is all over, right? They, can, they all know that we observe these customs. And these, if the Gentiles continue in these things, it would create relational rifts that could not be mended, right? That's what we're getting in this passage 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders that the whole church, uh, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch, where the conflict was kind of originating, right? Um, with Paul and Barnabas. Now, they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from the brothers with the following. So they send four dudes. Why? Because people are saying, Paul, you're not real. You're not a real apostle. Apostle. <laughs> apostle. So we're going to send prominent leaders from Jerusalem to verify, okay? Um, the brothers, uh, so I'm in 23, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, okay? Uh, I got a couple, okay, wait. Uh, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Notice, it is not a law. He says, you will do well. Okay? So, to refute any ideas that Paul had gone rogue from Jerusalem teachings, they send Judas and Silas to verify the message. And like I mentioned earlier, we see in several letters of Paul, specifically 1 Corinthians 9, that he has to fight and uh, prove his apostolic authority. Okay? So, they say Paul and Barney, I'll point that out. So, 30, here we go. We'll read the rest now. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation of Antioch together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The Gentiles were stoked. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, remember it was their home base, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. After some days, I'm reading this intentionally, this last bit. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Consequently, also every city that stoned him and kicked him out and beat. 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We'll come back to that. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, departed, having been committed by the brothers of the grace of the Lord, and went through Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, because of the teaching that was arising in the church, that was incompatible. Notice they said that had sent, came from us. So these are people from Jerusalem that had gone to Antioch and were asserting some sort of authority in teaching. Um, because of this teaching that was rising up that was incompatible with the gospel, they gather all the big hitters in Jerusalem to work this out. So you have this crew who are the Pharisees, which I mentioned earlier, who had believed. This is Paul's crew. Now, if you grew up in church, we like to paint the Pharisees as the bad guys in all the stories, don't we, right? If you, if you know the church stories, if you remember the felt board, right? The Pharisees, we imagine in our minds, wear black capes, have long spindly fingers and bowler hats, right? And they, and they talk like, you know, they have like a wispy voice, right? Um, I want to humanize a little bit their position for us today, Right? For them, despite the supernatural power that they no doubt witnessed in the early church, despite the compelling generosity that we know was characteristic of the early church, despite the presence of God that they felt, surely the Pharisees, surely felt the presence of God in worship and prayer in a way that they had not prior, or they probably would not have converted. Now, is that in the text? No, I'm putting that in. I should step over here for a second, right? Okay, the Pharisees knowing they have experienced all these things, did not realize the comprehensive reach and power that the death and the resurrection of Jesus had over his people. They didn't, they thought, okay, he died. I get it. Yes, there's power. We can't deny it, right? We can all see it. Yes, there's newness of life, but we're still Jews, and we're still subject to the law of Moses. And if the Gentiles are going to get on this, they better stop acting like Gentiles, start acting like good Jews. And to the discomfort of all the men in the room, they said, let's start with circumcision, right? So 
What seems weird for us, for the Jews, was the first, circumcision, was the, one of the first symbols in life of God's covenant with them. It was enshrined in law. They are not trying to shirk just a custom they had come up with, y'all. This was mosaic law. It was in the deal. Eighth day, men are circumcised. It goes all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 17, 11. I'm gonna read it for you just to prove it. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you who is eight days old among you, you shall be circumcised. Every, the word of the Lord, every male, throughout all your generations, born in your house, bought with money, foreigner, not your offspring, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. This is a physical marker of the covenant of God, right? Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now we think this is a weird thing, but think about uh, Roman Greco times, because we can, we can kind of get there, right? Um, uh, remember the Olympics? Bros did that naked. Bathhouses, a bunch of naked men. So nudity in the Greco-Roman world was much more common for men. So this was something people would see, basically, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, like, we're like, who cares, man? Right? Well, it it would, you'd see it, okay? So, like I said, we often demonize uh, the Pharisees, right? We we paint them with, with dark strokes, right? but they are defending the purity of their faith. I mean, they are, guys, they are the ultra-conservative who insisted that God's law was unchanging and that it was the way to life. Plenty of sermons in Christian churches have been preached. It's important what we believe. It's important how we live, and we need to obey God's law because it leads to life. And we'd say, amen, that's a good sermon. Good sermon, preacher, right? Right? Secondly, in the history of the Jews, it was often the mixing of cultures that led to idolatry and sexual immorality. So these poor Pharisees, they're already being stretched, hanging out with Gentiles, right? In the, so we need to kind of give them a little sympathy, right? And now they're like, okay, we can, but we got to draw the line somewhere, right? We're going to hang out with Gentiles. We're going to draw the line somewhere. And they never could have imagined what Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia called the deep magic of the cross was that the grace of God in Christ, the presence of his spirit does not just forgive sin, doesn't just cleanse, but but establishes a living righteousness that his people enjoy, right? That when God came to men, he brought a new authority over the law. Let me read you from a portion of John Piper's book, A A Peculiar Glory. Um, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To be sure, many instructions and rules and religious practices and rituals from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced. But this is not because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary. And pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them obsolete. The new people of God, the followers of the Messiah, the true Israel, is not an ethnically, politically, geographically defined people any longer. This is exactly what's being wrought out in the the book of Acts. Christianity has no geographic center. It has no single ethnic identity. It is not a political nation-state. 
It has no system of sacrificing animals, no tabernacles, no succession of priests, no divinely authorized feast days, no requirements of circumcision or dietary particulars. All of these Old Testament patterns were temporary. Jesus fulfilled and ended them. So what we have to understand is how difficult it was for them, for the most devoted Jews, right? The most devoted Jews loved the law. They loved it, y'all. I mean, it's what Psalms 119 says. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night, right? It was their cultural identity. It set them apart from every other people group as God's people. Think how difficult the shift had to be, right? Now, what sets you apart from others is not your ethnicity. It's not your ability to obey the laws, but the very spirit of God in you. And we say, well, sounds great. But for them, think of how difficult this transition would have been. They had to shift their sense of right standing before God, not, no longer to be based on their ability to obey the rules, but now on the work of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians would later say, for our sake, he made him to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was unthinkable for a good law-abiding Jew and difficult for us today. Uh, not the sinner, it's not really difficult for them, it's difficult for the people to go to church, right? For the good law-abiding Christian, the gospel is not obey so you can receive mercy. It is because you have received mercy, obey in glad submission for what God did for you that you can never do for yourself. So Peter gets at this when he drops the truth bomb in 910. What what he says is this, right? Uh, Neither us nor our fathers have really been able to obey the law in its fullness, right? So Peter basically says to them, stop pretending, boys. Some of us might need to hear that one. Stop pretending, right? Like, I know we love to be well thought of and maintain the Christian facade of perfection, but when your marriage is falling apart, you need to stop pretending. Because if the gospel is true, then there is no need for you to hide behind the facade of perfection anymore because guess what's grace? It's called grace, forgiveness. And if the family of God is to be the bearers of that grace, then this place above any should be the place where we can come and say, I'm broken. This place above any should be the place where we can come and say, I've been pretending and I need to stop. Peter says, Stop pledging allegiance to rules and laws that you know you can't keep. Neither we nor our fathers have been able to keep it. Because of Jesus, now salvation comes from grace and grace alone. And he saves us just like he saved them. And it says they fall silent, right? No doubt in wonder and amazement and in disbelief of such a grace. Is such power possible? Is God so strong that he can conquer and forgive and restore even me, right? Salvation from not only sin, but the weight of the law, it's mind-blowing, right? And it's, of course, truths like this that Jesus was trying to get at when he said, when the Son sets you free, he sets you free indeed. It's arguably what all of the book of Romans is about when Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force, and he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. So there's so much more here that we could park on and, and, and talk about, like how today we still gravitate towards law, how today we still seem to prefer new laws over new life, right? right? Maybe so we can avoid the depth of gratitude necessary as recipients of such a free salvation. See, law keeps you in control, right? Law is, if I do this, then God will do this. That's, that's contracts. But the language of the Bible is not contract. It is covenant. Covenant says, he will do this no matter what you do. That's covenant. And the Bible is covenantal in its language. It is not contractual. So you can run from God. You can hide. You can clutch your sin to your chest. You can hate God. You can spit in his face. You can nail him to a tree. And nothing will change the historical fact that he has pursued you in Christ. It is covenant. It is not contractual, right? Gift disarms our sense of entitlement. Gift acknowledges the complete authority of the giver. And the early Christians were having to figure out what God's gift meant for them in practice, right? So we could talk more about that. We could talk about all the scriptures where Jesus addresses his authority over the law in the Old Testament, right? Why Christians don't observe Old Testament law. All that's here. But what I want to sit with for our time, the rest of our time together today is the clear presence of conflicts that we see in the early church and how they dealt with it. So we're gonna just talk about this and we'll be done, okay? So there are two pretty big conflicts that we read today. First, dealing with the teachings of circumcision and second, what's called a sharp disagreement in between Paul and Barnabas. These dudes were bros, right? They had been through beatings together, been through riots and crowds. They were, they were bros, right? Like blood bros, right? And yet they have this sharp disagreement. Now, we didn't really mention this when we walked through uh, earlier where, where this happens in Acts 13, but John Mark had gone with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary effort. Now, the reason he's not really in it is because after Pamphylia, he bails. And we don't really know why. It just says he leaves, right? And so Paul says, look, man, bro flaked out last time. All right, flaked out, little snowflake. And don't want to bring him. I don't want to bring him anymore. And so Barnabas, being his big heart, compassionate, invitational type man, he's like, no, man, we're bringing him. He's still, let's, let's take him. And they, it, it's so divisive and so sharp that they part ways over it. So uh, Barnabas takes, uh, what's his name? John Mark to Cyprus and Paul chooses a new partner, Silas. And they go to other towns, all right? So that's very clear and cut. We see the sharp disagreement, right? So and then, of course, there's the whole thing about circumcision, these two massive conflicts in the early church. So despite many Christians' effort to paint the community of faith as perfect, right? You're, like check, you're just checking out churches today. You're like, I'm going to find me a perfect church. <laughs> and we're all like, yeah, yeah, you should. We're all, yeah, you should come here. It's, honestly, it's, why, it's the whole pretty good church thing. I just like to kind of poke at it a little bit, you know? This facade of perfection that we like to project, Right? We like to paint the community of faith as we don't fight. Marriages don't fall apart here. Our kids obey us. Our bosses love us. Right? Right? I mean, anyone ever walk into a church and immediately feel, I don't belong here. <laughs> These people are perfect. Oh, a bunch of plastic folks. I'm like Ken and Barbie and I'm not, you know, so I'm just gonna, right? And the one place 
that we should be able to deal with our issues is the one place we feel like we're the odd man out for having them, right? Despite that, what we see in scripture is not this kind of plastic projection of perfection, but honest wrestling and conflict. This should comfort some of us today who have had to wrestle with difficult things in the community of faith, right? What we see in the New Testament is extremely important issues being hotly debated and wrestled through it, right? The conflict over the nature of the work of Christ is pretty massive. And it was happening in the early church. In in verse two, it says, no small dissension and debate. That means things got hot. Voices were raised, right? And with someone like Paul, right? Who said like, cut it off, you know? Like, you know, you know, it probably got hot up in there, right? Even at the Council of Jerusalem, when they're like all in their home front, just all their, all their teams in together, it says there was much debate. All right, so let's chat, all right? If there's one word that would describe the cultural moment we are in right now, would it not be conflict? Okay? And conflict in which people are afraid to be honest. Anyone ever experienced that one? Afraid to actually discuss the issues because People lose their minds, don't they today? (laughs) Listen, if amongst the family of God, we, I mean, anyone else ever feel like, man, sometimes sermons get uncomfortable, (laughs) right? Anyone, if amongst the family of God, we don't feel like we can honestly wrestle through cultural issues, then where, where can we be honest and wrestle through these? Can I ask you a question? Are you the kind of person that people feel they can talk with you about issues that are difficult in a thoughtful way? Or do you lose your mind on them because they don't immediately agree with you? Awkward silence. (laughs) I'm gonna be real with you, right? Like I know we're in church, I wanna be honest. I mean, we're in church, all right, just humor me, right? There are people who are leaving their faith right now because they can't handle disagreement at small group. Maybe because they think church is the place where everyone has to agree about everything and conflict makes them uncomfortable or because they don't think you have the right to have a different opinion from me. But at the root, people are bailing on Christianity because of conflict and they've not felt like they can talk about it in in a Christian atmosphere, so they've dipped out. Listen, if you're the kind of person that can't talk with someone who disagrees with you, What are you afraid of? And I'll tell you, most often, we are afraid that they might poke holes in our beliefs. And therefore, we fortify them in our insecurity. Most often, we are afraid of real, honest conflict because we are insecure in our faith. We are insecure in the things we believe in. We are afraid someone can poke a hole in them, so we put up a facade of fortified, whatever, right? Okay. Thank goodness there was conflict in the early church because it gives us some clues of how to deal with it. So if you're like a type A and you want A, B, C, I'm gonna give you four points, all right? Here we go. It's gonna tell us how the early church dealt with conflict and number one was together. Number one, together. That's how they dealt with conflict. They let their conflict crowd them to each other and they did this crazy thing. They talked about it. All the passive aggressive people in the room shuddered, right? Right, they actually talked about the conflict instead of just slam doors aggressively or I I clean really aggressively in my house when I'm with the vacuum when we're in conflict, right? 
and look at the tools that they used to discuss conflict. What did they cite, right? They remind each other of what God had done in their own experience. They speak of their, that's valid when you're in conflict. Number two, they remind each other of what God had done and thus reflect on the character and nature of God. This is who God is. This is what he does. This is what Jesus is doing from our text. It says this. He says, he cleanses, he saves. He doesn't distinguish between us. He's a God of grace. And they let that inform the discussion. Number three, they were gut-wrenchingly honest and you or us obey these rules, right? And then number four, they let scripture bear its weight on the topic. They, quote, they quoted Amos 9. If you find yourself in cultural or theological debate and you neglect one of these things, I would argue you have a vested interest in winning an argument instead of honestly seeking truth. Can I say them again? They remind each other of what God had done in their experience. They remind each other of the character and nature of God. They are gut-wrenchingly honest, and they let Scripture bear its weight on the topic, right? Listen, all truth is God's truth. If it is true, God is the originator of that truth. And as Christians, we need not fear truth. And therefore, need not fear conflict if we are honestly seeking truth. Now, if you're hiding and lying, yeah, you should fear truth. But we believe as Christians that the Bible has all we need for salvation and that God himself is the author of all truth. I'm going to read you a very heady theolo theological quote. Ready? And then we'll, we'll be out of here. We're going to be quick. All right. He, God, is the truth in its absolute fullness. He, therefore, is the primary, the original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. He is the ground of truth, the true being of all things, of their knowability and their conceivability, the ideal and archetype of all truth, of all ethical being, of all rules and laws in light of which the nature and manifestation of all things should be judged and on which there should be modeled. God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in all of its areas of life. You can thank the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink for that one. If this is true, and we have the character and nature of God, we have scripture, we have experience, we have honesty, we can enter into honest, heartfelt debate in Christ-exalting, God-glorifying way and have no fear of differing opinions. We have got to stop looking at differing opinions as a threat. I feel like I need to say that again. We've got to stop looking at differing opinions as a threat. No matter what the debate is, I feel that Scripture does and will have things to say. The character and nature of God does and will bear its weight on the thing. So let me tell you why I think it is so important that we are willing to wrestle and debate and go through conflict with one another as Christians. First, if you are unwilling to do this, then you have to Lone Ranger it. What else can you do, right? And Lone Ranger, let's just fly solo, right? If you're just gonna out everyone who disagrees with you, well, you just gotta live life alone, bro, right? You can have Tonto, his name's Dummy. So in other words, you just get a yes man as your best friend, right? Surround yourself with yes men, yes girls, right? Never push back. I mean, some of us do that. We get friends around us, community around us, just yes men. Just gonna say, yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone does that. I mean, yes, pastor, right? Amen, right? Never push back, never hold you accountable, never remind you of the things you've said. And I'm telling you, man, if that's you, if that's your friends, you have an imaginary community because it's not real. It's not honest, right? It's imaginary, right? More realistically, the reason I think it is valuable for us to not be afraid of conflict and dive into difficult issues together as Christians is this. Let me explain to you this by an experience that I've had, okay? Lately, I hung out with a good friend of mine who would not call himself a Christian. Um, I don't think he'd call himself a Christian. We got lunch, and we debated the difference between psychology, specifically the power of the psychoanalytical method, 
and the power of Christianity. I loved it, right? You guys are like, I don't even know what that means. Man, I was like, loved it, right? We were coming from very, so psychoanalyzed, Freud, right? So the power of, of those type of methods versus the power of Christianity, right? We were coming from very different perspectives and straight up disagreed a whole lot. Several times in our three-hour conversation, the phrase, I disagree with you, came out, right? And some of y'all, some of y'all like, nice people are like, oh, that phrase, I disagree with you, you know, right? And I left there like, on some sort of high. I don't know, it's weird. I'm just a weird nerd, right? I was buzzing for two solid days, thinking about our com- coming back to the ideas, wrestling through the logic, meditating on the work of Christ. Man, what does it do? What do we need to do? And you know why? Because he pushed back. You know? He had the nerve to disagree with me, <laughs> the pastor, <laughs> right? Where do you think he is, right? No, you, you, you know what the, the deal was? You know why I was buzzing is because it made me question, what do I believe? What do I really think about the power and sufficiency of the cross of Christ? How does it play itself out? Does the Bible actually back that idea that I have swimming around in my head? I don't know, right? What does God think of this? Sheesh, I don't know. Led me back to scripture. Led me back to my experience. Led me back to honesty, right? It's so important to be willing to wrestle through opposing ideas because if we will keep the egos out and offense at bay with a decent dose of maturity, the conversation will sharpen and clarify for your own mind and heart what you really believe. Are we chatting? Does that make sense? Can you see some value in this, right? And I think we can do it in a way that glorifies Jesus and invites others into his choice. Let me be honest, right? I find conversation about, and then we're gonna get out of here. I'm sorry I went long today. I find conversation about ideas or theology or culture that lack some pushback really boring right? So luckily for me, my wife disagrees with me all the time. So it's like a match made in heaven, right? But the no, but like when small groups like, yeah, it was awesome. Loved everything. Everything was perfect. Loved this. I mean, I'm just kind of like, well, all right, small group's over, you know, no one's there. Like my first question is like, hey, what did I say that was heretical? You know, I'm like kind of joking, but I like kind of want to push a little bit and be like, what do we think? Like what rubbed you wrong? Like, let's push back a little bit. Let's wrestle with some of these ideas, right? And you ever feel like everyone's just agreeing with you just to, you know, agree with you, right? And now, listen, I'm not talking about being a contrarian just to stir up strife. I am talking about not allowing a superficial sense of social cohesion to stop you from wrestling through real, real, real questions that you have about God and Jesus and Christianity. Make sense? I'm not talking about disagreeing just to be a jerk. I'm talking about not letting a superficial sense of social cohesion stop you from wrestling with the real questions you have about God and Christianity. As Christians, we have to learn to stop seeing differing opinions as a threat and instead see them as an invitation to wrestle through ideas and further clarify in our hearts who God is and what is the nature of the grace that he offers to us. We should not be afraid of honest debate and conflict, guys, because I believe if we are honest in the seeking, honest in the knocking, God will meet us and show himself to us in increasing clarity and his glory and mercy will again and again pierce through the clouds of our own depravity and bring us into his glorious light. If we will be honest if we will give scripture its proper place, if we will let the love of God inform our wrestling, that we have nothing to fear. Let's stand and pray.